think as we've been going through 1 Samuel 30, you've been recognizing that there truly is nothing in life that God has not ordained to glorify His name. Heaven and hell, uh, every aspect of our lives was designed by God to bring Him the glory. And uh, let's go ahead and read. Uh, We've already dealt with the first few verses, but I'm going to start just to give context again at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 30. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite had been taken captive. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David, So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, For two hundred stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. They gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind, because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites and the territory which belongs to Judah, and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Amen. 
Father, we thank you for this, your word. And it is our glory to not only study it and understand it, but to live it out. And we pray by your spirit, you would enable us to do so. We love you, and we devote this time to you, and we pray that you would receive the meditations of our heart as we interact with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In my last sermon, we went over the first six verses, and we were examining some of the principles that enable us to face a crisis without becoming a crisis ourselves. David did not lash out at God or lash out at the men like all of the other men seemed to be doing. He didn't even lash out at them when they were attacking him and being so mean and unfair to him. Uh, We saw instead how he strengthened himself in the Lord by faith and was able to face his crisis and anguish of heart in a godly way. But today we're going to be seeing that just because David had faith did not mean that the crisis went away. And so many Christians have an unbelievably naive view of Christianity. They think if they have faith in God that all of their problems are going to evaporate, they're not going to have any pain any longer, and they're so disappointed when the pain remains. In fact, some of them are downright disillusioned with Christianity as a whole uh, when the false advertising falls apart. And let me tell you something, it's not God who brought that false advertising, men did. God has never promised us a rose garden or a bed of roses. Uh, he has instead promised us quite the opposite. You look through the Gospels and you will see that Jesus, when uh, there were would-be followers who wanted to come after him. He always made them count the cost of discipleship. And he said, you can expect persecution and pain and misunderstanding and the disappointment. He did not engage in false advertising. In fact, let me give you a couple of examples from his own mouth. In Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself... That ain't fun. And take up his cross daily. That's unbelievably painful. And follow me. His whole call to discipleship was a call to endurance, to daily denying our own desires, taking up our cross, and following after Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 13 says, He who endures to the end shall be saved. He's questioning your salvation if you lack endurance completely. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Wow. I mean, he's saying you're not even going to get to heaven if you lack endurance. A remarkable passage. The writer to Hebrews worried about the believers in his church because they were so discouraged that they were tempted not to endure. And he told them, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, the reason I'm bringing up those scriptures is because there might be some here who are tempted to zone out during this uh, sermon thinking, hey, everything's going great in my home. Everything's going great at my uh, work. I don't really need to endure. I'm not planning to go to the Olympics. I'm certainly not going to race through the blizzards at the Iditarod, you know. And so I don't need any endurance. But Hebrews says to you, you have need of endurance. 
He says that to every one of us as believers. Our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil is a constant call to endurance. Sometimes it is just blazing hard to do the right thing when you don't feel like doing the right thing. It takes endurance for a wife to be a godly wife when the husband is not being godly, right? And actually, I probably shouldn't ask for uh, <laughs> responses because a lot of you wives are going to be nodding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you husbands are called to endurance as well, right? And you singles, it takes endurance to maintain yourself sexually pure uh, all the way to marriage and keep yourself sexually pure after marriage. This sermon is for every Christian. We are called to endurance. Now, let me clarify something before we get into it, though, because we're not talking about a hopeless endurance that is endlessly miserable, right? Joylessly trudging through life with glassy eyes. No, that's a counterfeit endurance. That's not the endurance that flows from the Spirit. We're going to be seeing uh, later on in the sermon that the endurance that is a fruit of the Spirit is an endurance that flows from hope, okay? We are inspired to endure. We're energized to endure, okay? That's the kind of endurance we're going to be talking about. Now, likely, God's not going to call any one of you to the kind of depth of endurance that David and his men had to face in this chapter, but sometimes it's going to feel like it. Uh, it's probably not going to be at this depth, but in any case... The endurance that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit flows from faith, hope, and love. And we're going to start with love because that's where this chapter starts. Now, I've talked to a number of people who had previously said they would never go through a certain kinds of chemotherapy because it's just so painful and they don't see the point. It doesn't seem like uh, those kinds of chemotherapy will work. And then later, they, you know, they have cancer and they go through the chemotherapy. And you ask them why. Well, our kids really begged me, you know, to take the chemotherapy. They wanted me around for a few more months. They weren't convinced it was even going to work, but they did it out of love for their children. I've seen uh, mothers go through unbelievable hardships because they love their children. 1 Corinthians 13 links faith, hope, love, and endurance together as a package deal when it says this, Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, we've already seen in the first six verses that uh, the love that the men had for their wives and children uh, was a strong, strong love. And in the rest of the chapter, it's a love that makes them fight to the nth degree to get back their wives and their sons and their daughters. They almost go beyond a body's endurance because of their love. But I do want you to notice something. They don't love their wives and their children any more in verses 8 and following than they did in the first six verses. Uh, so love by itself is not enough. Take a look at verses 4 through 6. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Now, certainly they loved their families. I don't think they loved their families any less here than they did in the previous chapter or later on. But because they had lost all hope, that love was not enough to make them seek after their, uh, their, their children, let alone endure in seeking after their children. Now, the text goes on. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite had been ta taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. 
But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Other than David, these men had lost hope that they would ever see their families again. And verse 4 says, they wept themselves into a state of utter exhaustion. Hope without love might seem irrelevant to the issue of endurance, but love without hope is not enough to make us endure. You've got to have these three together. Now, faith is also important. It was faith in God that made David at least try to do what seemed hopeless to do. And in the last message, we looked at two psalms with which David strengthened himself in the Lord. He fought his unbelief. He, he wrestled with his unbelief, and even though he didn't feel like it, he began taking the actions of faith a step at a time. And we saw Psalm 69 has several actions of faith that David was, uh, was taking. He really required faith. One was to ask God to help him to bless his men, even though his men were being incredibly mean to him. They wanted to stone him. And so, in effect, he's asking, Lord, I need a supernatural love uh, it's the same kind of love that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, a love that can bless those who curse you, that can respond with love to those who hate you, and uh, minister to those who want to stone you, right? That's a supernatural love that he's asking for, and it takes faith to enter into that realm of the supernatural. Another evidence that David was trying to take steps of faith was that he took actions against the Amalekites. Now, he didn't know where the Amalekites were, but he knew that God knew where they were. And so in Psalm 69, he starts pronouncing God's curses against these Amalekites who had taken all of his, uh, all of his family and all of his substance. And he knew that God, wherever they might be, could take them out. Those are actions of faith that he was, uh, that he was taking. And so instead of giving up, he has the actions of faith. He has the words of faith. And David didn't know what God's plan was, but he was doing what he could. Another action of faith that he took in Psalm 69 was that after crying his heart out before God, he said, Lord, even though I'm weeping, even though I'm sorrowful, I still trust you completely, completely trust you. Um, his words were words of faith. He told God that though he was sorrowful, I will praise you. It takes faith to do that. He told God, even though he felt like he was in prison, he knew God was going to release him in his due time, and he had to fulfill all of the promises that he had given to David and that he had given uh, to Israel. And so let me read you a sampling of what David said at the end of that psalm. But I am poor and sorrowful. Remember the earlier verses in Psalm 69 show he was weeping his heart out before God. And yet by faith he says... Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. It just makes me shiver when I think of the depth of his determination to live by faith. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. In other words, it's a sacrifice to, to thank God in this circumstance. You know, it, 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 it's very much of a sacrifice. It, it, it's hard to do. He goes on. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your hearts shall live, for the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. 
also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now, did David feel like saying that? No, not at all. He probably felt like lashing out at God and complaining and lashing out at his men, just like all of the other men were doing. But he forced himself to think by faith, to talk by faith, to live by faith. He shook himself by the scruff of the neck and says, David, don't you dare give up. David, don't you dare doubt God. In fact, uh, David reminds me very much of the way uh, Saudi trainers of those famous horses, uh, those Arabian horses, uh, often train their horses. They take those horses almost beyond their endurance. They make them go without water for days, and then they let the horses loose. And, of course, the horses immediately run toward the water, and just before they plunge into the water to try to drink, the trainer, this is their last test, the trainer blows a whistle, and the horses come to a stop, at least the ones that have been trained well, come to a stop, they turn around, and they come pacing back to the master, and they're just quivering. They can hardly wait to get to the water, but they're waiting obediently before the master, and when he sees he's got their obedience, he gives them the signal, and they run, and they drink. And this is, I think, what God was in effect doing here. He was preparing David for his kingship, and when he saw a total submission on the part of David, he gives the command, go, you can drink. And that's uh, the words that you see in verses 7 through 8. Uh, These verses give the third key to endurance, and that's hope. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now we aren't told how the ephod brought... Uh, guidance, and uh, there's all kinds of guesses as to how in the world that worked. But we looked at that verse last time. We saw it's very, very important uh, that we seek guidance. Gary referred to it earlier this morning. But this was something that gave them hope. And what I want to do right now is I want to paint a picture of the kind of endurance that this sure hope gave to David and his men, because it really is remarkable. Remember we saw last time that David had traveled a minimum of 120 miles over the last six days. That's an average of 20 miles a day with all of the baggage and the food and the weapons that they're carrying. Uh, That's a fairly decent workout. Now, if some people are correct, it's actually, and, and this is the affect that's up near Shunem, then it's actually more than 36 hours, a, uh, 36 miles a day for the last six days that he has taken. I'm just going to go ahead and take the the most conservative estimate of 20 miles a day, because that's a fairly decent workout, even for a small army like his. And um, then you've got them combing through the ruins to find any bodies, and when they realize that uh, all of their families have been kidnapped, they are mourning. And so let's be very conservative and say they did all of that combing and all of that mourning within one hour, okay? That leaves two hours for them before sunset. Now, this renewed hope in verse 8 gave them a renewed energy. There's something about hope that does that. Even the 200 that cannot move another step at the brook Besor 
have a great deal of renewed energy. And Lord willing, next week I'll be giving a sermon on the, the people who stay by the baggage. I think that's a very important lesson. I'm not going to comment on that now, but I do want to read verses 9 through 10. So David went, he and 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. Now, it doesn't say they would not cross. It says that they could not not even that they thought they could not. God says they could not. They had literally come to their body's absolute limits uh, that, that, that they could go. Now, let's just do a little bit of a calculation here so that we can sympathize with those 200 people. Uh, some people are critical of them. I am not critical of the 200 in the least. If the last day's journey was te- uh, tw- 20 miles, like I say, it could be as much as 36, but if it was 20 If they really pushed it, they would have arrived with the baggage probably somewhere around 3 p.m. is what people who are um, biker, uh, not bikers, um, uh, trekkers and and in the military say. Somewhere around 3 p.m., good stiff march uh, for even, if you're without any baggage, you could maybe do it by about 2 p.m. They'd be tired, but they'd be happy when they started getting close to Ziklag. But the shock of seeing Ziklag burned would take the wind out of their sails and like I say, if they had combed through all of the burning, burnt buildings looking for bodies, and then they spent that time weeping, um, you probably have about two hours before dusk. Now, from Ziklag to the Brook Besor, where 200 are left behind, is 16 miles. Now, just to give you a little bit of perspective, a half marathon is 13 miles, Okay. And the average time for a half marathon is one hour and 54 minutes. It's about two hours. Uh, Trevor can do it a lot faster than two hours. Uh, but, you know, when you've got baggage and everything that you're carrying, it, it's probably fairly realistic to say about two hours. But the problem is they didn't have a full two hours because uh, in the next two hours uh, they have got to... Uh, not only leave all of their baggage with the men, cross the brook, they find this Egyptian, they nurse him back to health, and then they've got some more trekking to do before they get to the Amalekites around dusk. And so uh, they've traveled a minimum of 36 hours that day, the last 16 being at a pretty good run. It's going to be significantly faster than the average marathon pace that they're running at. And so I can understand why they are physically exhausted and they absolutely cannot take another step when they finally get to that that brook. They've taken their bodies to its absolute limits. But I wanted to point out that the hope gave even those 200 men energy to do something rather impressive, to run three miles more than a half marathon after having traveled 20 miles that day and 120 miles on the previous day. Okay. So what kept the 400 going? Obviously, they had pushed their bodies almost beyond their physical limits as well. But in verses 11 through 15, their hope is fanned into a blaze with the news from the Egyptian that the Amalekites aren't too far away. Uh, Sometimes it takes renewed encouragement and renewed hope uh, to get people's uh, endurance going again. And you need to keep this in mind when your children's endurance is lagging. You need to add hope and encouragement. Be a cheerleader. Give them scriptural hope. I read that Florence Chadwick, the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways, 
um, uh, tried to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. Two times she tried to, to do that. I can't even imagine wanting to do that. I spent an hour in that water in the summertime, but froze myself to death in that one hour. I cannot imagine how she was in there. But anyway, the first time uh, she failed because she lost hope, and she said it really wasn't the distance, and it wasn't the chilling waters. Uh, she said it was lost hope. After 15 hours in the water, within one mile of her goal, she gave up because she couldn't see the land, all the fog that was, uh, that was in there. And she told a reporter, if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. She said, I was licked by the fog. And I think the same is true of us. When the fog comes in, we, we lose hope. We can't see where we're going, and we just wonder, is it worth it? Is it worthwhile uh, to continue? Now, the second time she tried it, the fog was obscuring her vision as well, but she kept in her mind the mental image of that coastline, convincing herself she could make it, that the coastline is just around the corner, and it's that mental image that is the hope that we are talking about. And so that combo of faith, hope, and love is what keeps your endurance going. When you're discipling your children to endure, make sure that you fan the flames of all three. And there's all kinds of exercises you can give to increase faith, increase hope, increase the love uh, of your children. And if any one of those three is missing, the others will wither on the vine. What happens to a love that has lost faith and hope? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 says it's no longer agape love because agape love in 1 Corinthians 13 is a love that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Those are a package deal. Now, it's true that in eternity, love is the greatest of the three. Why? Because it lasts longer than the other three. Faith gives way to sight. Hope gives way to fulfillment, but love continues to endure throughout all eternity. But it's not the greatest in an absolute sense because it's faith, after all, that receives every grace from the throne of Christ. And there are scriptures that talk about hope being the foundation for faith and love. Let me give you one of those uh, scriptures. They're kind of circular in their relationship with each other. Colossians 1.5 speaks of faith and love that spring... From hope. Huh. Because other scriptures talk about faith receiving love and hope. But here it says faith and love that spring from hope. So in that verse, hope is foundational. But really they all are. They are in a circular relationship and they continually are feeding each other. So it's important to realize when you're counseling, you've got to feed all three. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about the critical role that hope plays in endurance because I am convinced that this is the most neglected of the three in our century. We're a generation that has lost hope for the future. We've lost hope for families. We have given up the culture. We fail to endure. Romans 8.25 says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance, and as one version says, with endurance. Now, what's the hope he's talking about? It's God's promises concerning the future of planet Earth. It's eschatology. He is saying, if you've got the right eschatology, you're going to be able to endure. And this is why it is so silly to say eschatology is unimportant. 
Some people just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, who cares? You know, it's a complicated subject and it doesn't make any difference anyway. I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. And even though that's a clever quip, it robs people of hope, which in turn robs people of faith. If you don't have faith that God's going to do great things or has promised to do great things in the future, you can't have faith to attempt great things for the future, can you? So those graces really fit together. And when we're talking about eschatology, we shouldn't just be thinking about things that happen out there because God's got a personal eschatology for every one of you. Let's just take sanctification, for example. God's got an eschatology, that means promises concerning the future, of your sanctification. Let's think about that for a moment. Uh, 1 John 5, verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Have you been born of God? Okay, God's got an eschatology for you. You're going to overcome the world. That's an eschatology of victory. And there are hundreds of scriptures that you need to familiarize yourself with and place your hope upon if you are to endure in your sanctification. One of the biggest challenges that I have when I'm counseling people is to continually give them hope that they are going to be able to lick that problem. I constantly have to give them hope they can win the battle. Without the hope of the Scripture, you will not endure. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is promising in your future, you have the potential of growing nonstop in your Christian graces. That's an eschatology of victory. It's an eschatology of hope. Romans 8.28 is an eschatology concerning providence. What's it saying? Throughout your future, you can count on the fact that God's going to orchestrate all of your environment so thoroughly that He's going to work everything together for your good. That's an eschatology of hope, okay? Uh, God also gives an eschatology regarding your finances and your personal needs. He says in Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And in context, by the way, don't spiritualize that. Read the context. He's talking about money, cash, right? He's talking about cash and he's saying, I will supply for all of your needs. Now, it's not just talking about money, but he says, my God shall supply all your need. Now, that is an eschatology of hope that gives just as concrete a hope as the promise that God gave to David in this chapter. It's something that can energize you in providing for your family, energizing you. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep working at providing for my family. And speaking of the family, does God have an eschatology of hope for your family and for the future generations of your family? Absolutely. Yes, he does. It's all of the covenant succession promises that we've been reading over the last uh, few years where God promises to be a God to you and to your children after you in their generations. In fact, there's so many promises. Uh, my favorite one is that God can sustain the faith to what? A thousand generations of those who love Him. Amazing. That's an eschatology of hope that God gives. Now, does it involve your hard work? Well, of course it does. Uh, absolutely it does. Uh, Genesis 18:19 says that such promises concerning Isaac's future enabled Abraham to persevere in commanding his children and his household after him 
to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness, to do justice, and then here comes the operative phrase, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So that verse is saying you've got to keep this package of faith, hope, love, and endurance together. They, they will fall apart if one of them is missing. They're a package deal. And even though we have far, far more hope of covenant succession for all of our children than Abraham did, we must still endure in investing the Scriptures in their lives and raising them in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. So hopefully you can see this um, eschatology of hope is tied to faith, hope, love, endurance in everything. This package deal applies to everything in life. It applies even to our relationship to culture. We believe the Scriptures give us a hope for planet Earth and time and history. Christ promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But did the apostles have to endure in being the vessels through whom Christ was going to build the church? Of course, they had to. They had to. Endurance was not an option. Here's what Paul says. We endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. Now, the implication is if the apostles had not endured, the gospel would have been hindered. Can you see that? You cannot separate divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You can't take the promises of God and say, oh, good, I'm going to be lazy. I don't feel like doing anything. No, you've got to bind those together just like the Scripture does. Faith, hope, and love and endurance are a package deal. We need to teach our children that they are a package deal. Now, I glory in the promises that God has given for the future because those promises make our endurance worthwhile. Those promises energize us just like they energize David and all of those men. I love the promises of God for planet Earth because they make me want to lay down my life for Christ, to pour out my life for a cause. They energize me. They get me excited. Isaiah 9 promises that once Christ was born, that the increase of Christ's government and of peace would be nonstop. And if you don't have, if you don't have hope uh, for society as a whole, you're not going to have the energy to change society. Why? Because Scripture says that everything needed to change society flows out of hope, including endurance. It flows out of hope. Let me give you some examples. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 speaks of the patience of hope. Hebrews 6.11 speaks of the diligence of hope. Why in the world would I be diligent if I didn't think it was going to do anything? You know, the diligence of hope. Hebrews 6.19 says, hope is an anchor that keeps us steadfast. In other words, it keeps us from giving up. Why have so many evangelicals given up on uh, returning America to being a Christian republic? I believe they've given up because they have a faulty eschatology. They have an eschatology of despair, not an eschatology of victory. Romans 12, verse 12, speaks of rejoicing in hope. Okay, your hope for the future. Does it make you rejoice or does it make you gloomy? That's one way of testing. Do I have a biblical hope? Do you rejoice in hope? So many scriptures indicate without an eschatology of hope, you will give up, or at least you'll be constantly tempted to give up. Psalm 78, 5 through 7 says, Without hope... You're not going to keep on keeping God's commandments. Proverbs 13:12 says, "Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire is fulfilled, it is a tree of life." 
And I am convinced that the major reason many Christians don't endure in changing society, don't have endurance in investing in the training of their children, don't have endurance in their marriages, and basically give up on sanctification, is because they have lost hope. Now, the secondary reasons are important as well. Uh, Some have lost faith, some have lost love. But the biggest one, I think, they've lost hope. And I wanted to spend the bulk of uh, my sermon this morning on those three foundations. Well, let me quickly go through the reasons why endurance is not useless for believers. God is providentially at work in our lives, working everything together for our good. Now, when I preached on chapter 29, we saw that David was likely extremely disappointed that God had systematically closed four doors of opportunity. One after the other, all four doors were closed. Now, from hindsight, we look at that and we say, oh, wow, it's a good thing God closed those doors of opportunity. But at the time, he didn't realize it. He's probably somewhat disappointed. And we need to get used to looking at providence that way and saying, Lord, I'm hugely disappointed, but I'm looking forward to whatever the present is you've got from my life. I know you've got a good purpose in it. Then in verse 11, God makes them stumble on the key to success. And finding that Egyptian, if you look at the topography that they're marching through, finding that Egyptian was like finding a needle in a haystack. It says, Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. This is no accident. This was God providentially responding to David's prayer in Psalm 69. Last week I told you about how I was on the beach and we were going back. No, it was two weeks ago. Back and forth, back and forth, could not find my lost wedding ring. And then I prayed, Lord, open my eyes. I can't find it, but you can. And right at that time, I just kicked the sand, and up from under the sand popped my ring. Well, i got to tell you another fun story uh, along those lines. In her book, Keep a Quiet Heart, Elizabeth Elliot told about Brenda Foltz's first rock climbing experience. Okay, after a fair bit of climbing... Uh, hundreds of feet of climbing this uh, rock face. She got to a ledge where she was able to take a breather and just sit there and rest for a while. When she was ready to climb, she put her weight on the ropes. She wasn't a free uh, form climber. She always had ropes. But she put her weight on the ropes, and as she did so, the rope twisted around, snapped a piece, and knocked the contact lens out of her eye. And so here she is, hundreds of feet of rock above her, hundreds of feet of rock below her, and she's just on this narrow little ledge. She's trying to find this contact lens. She's hoping it fell on the ledge. She hunts, she hunts, she hunts, she cannot find it. And she prays to the Lord, Lord, please help me. I can't see very well without this uh, contact lens. And apparently the Lord did not see fit to let her find that, at least not right away. And... um, Finally, in, she, she starts, uh, she's disappointed and with fuzzy eyes. She climbs the rest of the way up. And when she gets to the top, she asks a friend, can you just look for me? I can't see it. So she's looking to see if it's gone somewhere else in her eyes. She's looking around in the closing. They can't, they can't find the contact lens anywhere. So she sits down, very, very discouraged uh, because she can't see so well. It makes her sick with one contact and the other missing. And... While she's sitting on the ground, there's a verse that just keeps persistently going through her mind over and over again. It's this verse. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And so she says to the Lord, Lord, you can see all these mountains. You know every stone and leaf, and you know exactly where my contact lens is. 
please help me. And as as they're walking down, uh, there's another group, totally different group than than they're waiting for. There's another group that comes up and yells, hey, you guys, anybody lose a contact lens? And she says, yeah, I did. And what's remarkable is not just that they found it, but how they found this contact lens. The guy says, yeah, I'm climbing up the ledge and I'm right at eye contact at this ledge and I see something moving across. And he's curious, what in the world is that? He picks it up. What is this? And he realized this is a contact lens and he probably would never have seen that contact lens if an ant had not been carrying this thing on its back across the ledge. (laughs) And her father later drew a little cartoon of this ant with the words underneath it, Lord, I don't know why you want me to carry this thing. (laughs) I can't eat it. (laughs) And it's awfully heavy. But if this is what you want me to do, I'll carry it for you. (laughs) And uh, someone responded by saying, you know, we ought to occasionally say concerning the burdens that we are struggling with, God, I don't know why you want me to carry this load. I can see no good in it, and it's awfully heavy. But if you want me to carry it, I will. Brothers and sisters, God never calls you to the endurance of carrying those heavy contact lenses across the rock ledge without a purpose. And if we can have the attitude, Lord, I don't know why you're making me go through the misery, but if you want me to endure, I'm willing to endure so that I can be a blessing into the lives of other people. I don't know who they're going to be, but I'm going to endure. Amen? Let's, let's take that attitude. Now, another little providence that is so cool is that God prompted them to bring provisions with them. Uh, Take a look at verses uh, 11 and 12. Then they brought an Egyptian, excuse me, then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate, and they let him drink water, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Now, why do I say it's a cool providence that they brought water, bread, raisins, and these cakes of figs with them? Um, Because you'd think they would bring that with them. Well, it's because verse 24 makes it clear that in their hurry, they dropped all of their supplies with the 200 men because they just wanted to be as as light as possible to try to catch up with these Amalekites, God prompted somebody to bring food along with them. And of course, it was providential that David and his men were in the habit of treating foreigners just like the Bible calls them to treat foreigners. If they had ignored the man, as many Jews would have been tempted to do, they would have had no information. But David and at least some of his men are obeying the commandment in Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, which says, You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. And he followed Leviticus 19, verse 34, which commanded him to love such strangers as he loved himself. 
Now, if David had been so self-absorbed in his anguish and in his sorrow that he said, I've got my own problems. I'm not going to mess with a man like this. We need to just keep on going. He would never have gotten the information from this Egyptian that would help him to find uh, his wives and his daughters that he cared for so much. And commentators point out that the amount of food that they gave to this Egyptian is more than a man's rations. Uh, and so there may have been some of David's followers who are saying, what are you doing giving away our food, you know, to uh, this Egyptian? But providentially, some men thought to have compassion upon him, even though they were overwhelmed with their own losses. And then, of course, this Egyptian was motivated to talk. If he was an Amalekite, he might not have, <laughs> you know, been willing to talk or admit that he was an Amalekite. Uh, but he was an Egyptian who had been abandoned to die, and that meant that he was left with no love for the Amalekites. So he was motivated to talk by his nationality as well as by his hunger and the fact that they gave him uh, food. And then, of course, God's providence prepared this Egyptian with perfect timing. Let's read verses 13 through 15. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt. So there's providence number one. Servant of an Amalekite. Wow, what are the chances of that? And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. Well, that's right at the time when David leaves Aphek. God closes that last door and he's coming back. I mean, it's very perfect timing. And verse 14, We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Now, this too is a remarkable providence that they didn't start with Ziklag. They ended with Ziklag. And um, David uh, is later going to collect an, a massive amount of booty from these guys because they've not only raided Judah, they've raided all of the land of the Phil uh, Philistines. And the reason for that, they knew all the armies of the Philistines. Remember, God says all of them went north. They said, ha, easy pickings. So they ca came and they completely devastated, raided all of the land of the Philistines. So David's going to have a massive amount of plunder. Verse 15, and David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. Now, even though he got sick three days earlier, he must have been abandoned shortly before this for him to know what the last stop of these Amalekites was. And so the timing of his disease, the timing of his loss of strength, his finally being cast off, it's all perfectly timed. And of course, God doesn't let him die. One more providence that worked with David's endurance was that the Malachites were utterly unprepared. Verses 16 through 17. When he had brought the, him down, there they were spread out over all the land. Now that's a great providence because if they'd been tightly grouped together, they might have been able to fight off David's men, but they were totally unprepared. They thought there aren't any soldiers in the south. Uh, they've all gone north to fight Saul, so they're just carefree. They're spread out everywhere, all over the land. He goes on, eating and drinking and dancing. Commentators say they were drunking. They were drunk, okay? So even though they vastly outnumbered David's men, they were not in good enough shape. They were not prepared to fight eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And then David attacked them from twilight. So that's a great providence. It's dark. 
Okay, and it appears that the Amalekites are too drunk to notice that David is going from camp to camp to camp, killing off all of these Amalekites who are utterly unprepared, don't even know what's happening. And he does it all, all night, all the next day. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Now, just keep in mind, the 24 hours of fighting comes after an absolutely grueling day. I just don't know how their bodies were able to, to, to handle this. But anyway, it says, until the evening of the next day, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. This is remarkable. David's exhausted men are only 400 strong. They're engaged in nonstop killing for 24 hours. And the passage says that all the Amalekites except for 400 young men are killed. That means the 400 are nothing compared to the numbers that have been slaughtered. Okay, The way it's worded implies that David's men killed a staggering number of Amalekites. We aren't told if it was 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. Some people say it's probably much more than that that David killed because uh, several commentators have pointed out this, this so decimated the Amalekite numbers that nothing is heard about Amalekites in biblical or secular history for another 290 years, the time of Hezekiah. So this is an absolutely remarkable thing. On one day, David almost accomplished what Saul failed to do in his entire lifetime. And of course, the author is deliberately making this contrast because he's going to be showing that David is much better at following through on God's commands than Saul was, and God's command was to utterly annihilate all of the Amalekites. So he's going to make a better king. But these providences are so amazing, they're almost miraculous. But the last point emphasizes that though providence enabled a resounding victory, it was no substitute for endurance. You cannot pit human responsibility against divine sovereignty or vice versa. Both must be held together. Without endurance, we lose. Without endurance and getting involved in our culture wars in our nation, we're going to lose the war. Without endurance with our spouse, doesn't matter what efforts you have put into their lives from your love, you're not going to reap the harvest. That's what Galatians says. We've got to endure, otherwise we will not reap the harvest. Without endurance in investing into our families emotionally, investing spiritually, investing in every way for their health, we cannot expect a healthy family to automatically happen. Without endurance with our children, we cannot expect success. And so endurance is an absolutely critical Christian grace that we must put on. It is part of picking up our cross daily, dying to self, and following Jesus. And I love David Livingston's response to his missions committee when they wrote to him saying, some people would like to join you. What's the easiest road to get where you are? And he wrote back, if they're looking for the easiest road, tell them to stay in England. <laughs> and that's exactly what Jesus said to those who wanted to come and follow after him. They, he was basically saying, if you're looking for the easiest road, don't even bother being my disciple. Now, this is what I tell people in, 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 in counseling. If you're expecting an easy road and you're not willing to invest all of your energies into overcoming your sins, don't even bother me. Don't bother. I'm, a, I'm kind of a tough counselor. Now, I do give hope, but I don't just pat you on the back. I expect you to do your homework. If you're willing to bust 
your chops. I'm willing to bust my chops for you too. But you've got to endure. Without endurance, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. This is not an option, brothers and sisters. Some of you don't endure. This is absolute must. Hebrews 12, verse 4, the writer told his church, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. He's basically telling them, Come on, guys, you say you're trying not to sin. I don't believe you. Where is the blood? Where is the evidence of wounds and you're fighting against sin? I don't see any evidence that you have totally expended yourself. I don't see any evidence of endurance. Paul tells um, us in 2 Timothy 2.3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You must. It is not an option. But let me end by reminding you once again that David's endurance was a victorious one. It was not a sullen endurance that hopelessly and joylessly trudges through life with glazed eyes. It was an endurance that sprang from a victorious faith, a determined love, an eschatology of hope. And I want you to be energized in the same way. I want you to be inspired to endure in the same way. How many here have ever seen the, the Harlem Globetrotters? Okay, a few of you have. Um, I don't know if they're even around anymore, but I saw them when I was a younger, and I was just fascinated with all of the tricks that these guys could do. But, you know, they were kind of pulling the wool over my eyes because there's really two teams that are playing, and another team that's critical to the whole Harlem Globetrotters' success is uh, the uh, Washington Generals. And the Washington Generals had one purpose in life, to be doormats to the Globetrotters, right? They passively got stomped in basketball. It was their job to lose. Well, brothers and sisters, God has not called any of you to be Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, Excuse me, he's called you to be Harlem Globetrotters. (laughs) He's not called any of you to be Washington generals, right? (laughs) It is not your job to lose, okay? He's called you to be enduringly victorious, not enduring doormats. And the endurance that flows from the Holy Spirit always advances His kingdom. And the the sparring partners that God has given to you, actually, the the, um, basketball team that He's given for you to fight is made up of the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And God calls you to have the faith, the hope, the love for Him that will make you endure in resisting the enemies that God hates so much. So you've been called to victorious endurance that advances the kingdom of Jesus through every move that you make. And if you believe that, I think it's going to make your endurance feel well worthwhile. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this call to endurance. Nobody enjoys enduring through the pain And yet we want to be good soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would give this grace, this fruit of the Spirit in great measure. And there's a mystery, Father, in realizing that everything comes from you. And yet we must strive with everything that is in us to put on these graces as well and to not relinquish them. Help us, Father, to be like David in Psalm 69 and to grab ourselves by the scruff of the neck and to demand, Phil Kaiser, don't give up. Don't, uh, don't doubt uh, God. Father, help us 
uh, to have this kind of wrestling with ourselves, wrestling with unbelief, wrestling against hopelessness, wrestling with any temptation uh, to give up love, uh, but uh, help us to be the kind of victorious saints that uh, endure to the end. And uh, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.